Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Carrying Through the Matrix on June the 13th, 2011. For newcomers to this actual show, you should look into cuttingthroughthematrix.com and you'll find hundreds of audios where you can help yourself and download them and go over them at your leisure and hopefully you'll find that there's a lot of shortcuts I've given you to understanding what's called the New World Order, the New System of Things, the Global Society and many other titles they put on it. Same thing, it's a, a, a planned system that's coming into view. It's actually here, it's been here for a while, and your lives are being run by what they call experts or world managers. And everything in the world, food, everything, exports, imports, will all be decided one day at the United Nations. A lot of it already is. And the type of society they want and citizenry they want has already been decided too, and you've been trained to be that citizen, in fact, for many years through UNESCO, working with all the other teachers' associations across the world. So help yourself to the audios. And remember, too, that you can get transcripts in all those sites listed on the com site. They all have them in English of a lot of the talks I've given and go into Alan Watt's Sentient Sentinel for transcripts in other languages and help yourself from the ones offered there. Remember, too, that you're the audience that bring me to you so you can buy the books and discs I have for sale. I've not gone commercial with this. I deliberately keep away from the commercial side of things and do it the suicidal way, which is uh, uh, hoping that you'll buy the books and discs and occasionally donate to me and help me just get by that way. Otherwise, I'll just go the other way too and start a big, big business. And then I'll, be, I'll have much more uh, credulity amongst people because they're, they're conditioned already to big business and advertising. And so they don't see anything wrong with it. So anyway, we'll see how things go if you buy the books and discs, as I say. You can order from the U.S. to Canada using a personal check or an international postal money order. Or you can use PayPal to order using the donation button. Follow it with an email with name, address, and order, and I'll get it out to you. Cash is okay, too, from the U.S. And uh, across the world, you've got... Uh, MoneyGram, Western Union, and again, PayPal to order using the donation button. And remember, straight donations are certainly, certainly welcome. This new world order, as I say, is not new. It's simply another phase of the same agenda that your life and your parents' life have gone through. They do it in stages, and they have it planned according to 50-year plans for parts of it, 100-year plans for another, even 150-year plans for other parts of it. In fact, in the early 20th century, they already had a lot of plans already drawn up and published, in fact, as to where they'd like to be in the 21st century, and you're going through a lot of this now. And they also knew there'd been a lot of confusion out there amongst the public. They knew what kind of backlash they'd have from different types of groups, and they already had all the groups listed, the, the religious groups and socialist groups, etc., etc., all different facts, even the Trotskyist groups. They'd them all listed the ones they'd expected to have some backlash, and even how to bring them on board with them, uh, they had figured out too, uh, and to get them to actually work towards this thing. Of course, they'd lie to you at the very end, and, uh, and that doesn't matter. You actually help often your enemy come along along the way, and that's what's been happening too, still happening today. 
And we also have this uh, sci-fi uh, society today who have been brought up with Hollywood. Uh, I think there's a book called um, Life, the Movie, uh, by the same author who wrote about, wrote about Hollywood and showed you how everyone starts to emulate what they see in Hollywood from the movies. And they certainly do. It even gives you all your venues for thinking and for abstract thinking. And it's already planted all the possibilities of things in your mind through through so many, as I say, science fiction, futuristic types of movies. And that's why people are off into UFOs and aliens. And all that's mixed together with the, the Patriot um, community as well now. Uh, it's quite interesting to watch this planned chaos and how it affects people. Back with more after this break. Folks, we're back, cutting through the matrix, and tonight I'll put up the, a link, in case for those who haven't seen it yet, there's a link to do with all the attendees that were listed at the Bilderberg meeting, and from all the different countries, and it really is a who's who of all the big corporations, banks, uh, media as well, even, even geopolitics uh, specialists and so on are all in there too, sociologists of all kinds, because... Um, these characters, as I say, are part of the system which is supposed to plan the future. They don't really plan it there. They just have a kind of brief summary from all the departments that are helping to work towards this big system. That's really all the time they'd have, about 10 minutes each, 15 minutes maximum. And that's a traditional way, too, the Royal Institute of International Affairs. You're only given a few minutes to give your brief, and that's it. Uh, however, they do meet, and of course they're all in contact with each other throughout the year as well, and uh, they are given their various agendas, and um, well, they're well paid for it, of course, too. They're kind of world managers, you might say, and um, but it's very interesting. All the countries are, are involved, all their, their banks are involved, the economics uh, characters, and as I say, university professors of all kinds and sizes and shapes, and... Even Canada was there too with a lot from the Bank of Canada. The Bank of Canada isn't actually a bank anymore. It's a, a, a literally a, a, an office floor in a building where the representative that's sent from the government to get the loans meets the guys he gets the loans from. And that's what they call the Bank of Canada in this day and age. And we used to make our own money here. We went through the Great Depression in Canada. And every country came across the country to see why we weren't falling under. It's because we printed our own cash and we sold it to the banks, basically. So there was no, that was actually a little bit of profit for a government there. And um, you didn't have to borrow from any private banks, but of course that had to be destroyed. I mentioned the documentary, it's called Old Canada, so many times. But it's worth getting a hold of it because it was through uh, the history of the Bank of Canada and how they destroyed it. And you'll hear uh, former prime ministers of Canada saying how wonderful the new system is. Having lots of debt apparently is terribly wonderful. And um, as Martin says that right on the, the video. And they all uh, echo the same thing. And then the present politicians, too, are interviewed one by one, and they haven't a clue how the money system works, which is the ideal system for politicians. You don't want them to know how things really do work. Because, as I say, there's another system working way above it that deals with everything. 
But I'll put the list up, anyway, list up anyway, and you can see who who who's who. And you can also, I mean, for those who have got time on their hands, can go through and find all the organisations each character belongs to, because that's even more important. So say they work all year round before they get their little brief summaries to uh, the representatives of those who own the world. And I've mentioned many times about technotronics and how things have been used on the public before. So many things, actually, well-documented, declassified from governments themselves, not only the spraying that they've done of all kinds of substances through England, Scotland, Ireland, Wales, and across the U.S. too, and in Canada. Um, and it's so awful. That, that, and we think, too, that, well, they stopped doing that about 1970. We've somehow evolved from then, and people are different. Well, no, they're not different at all, at least those in power. Power all, always has the same characters in it. And, um, and I've mentioned technotronics, how that was to be the ultimate weapon for controlling the public, well, at least one of them, apart from tinkering directly with your brain through genetic alteration, through drugs uh, and food and inoculations. <laughs> what a horror show we live in, really, when you sit in... This is your daily fare, isn't it? How you talk about things and you have the proof and the evidence, and yet you're like a, 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 you are like one of these aliens from outer space when you talk to the general public, something that's so common amongst yourselves. Anyway, they talked about technotronics, and we've heard this article before from other countries. The U.S. have been... Have been have had articles in the papers before. Tiny village's latest vi- victim of the the hum. They call it the hum, and this is uh, this is practicing some technolog- technological weaponry on the general public. See how they react. It's a mysterious sound on the very edge of perception that has driven thousands of people around the world to distraction. And um, it says here now a tiny English village is the latest community to claim to be hit by the phenomenon known as the hum. Residents of Woodland and County Durham claim that every night a noise permeates the air similar to the throb of a car engine. It is sometimes so strong that it even shakes the bed of one of the householders. But no matter how hard they look, the community cannot find the source of the problem and at their wit's end have called in the council to investigate. Well, if the council is not in in it, they won't either. They won't find anything either. The 300-strong population is the latest around the world to be hit by the rumble, which in the past led to wild conspiracy theories blaming on UFOs, government experiments, and abandoned mine shafts. So widespread that it's even featured in the television show The X-Files. So there, once again, you're, blend, you're blending fact and fantasy with fiction. You see, right off the bat. And, most, and the most famous occurrence in, in Bristol in the 1970s, when more than a thousand people complained of a constant, consistent drone causing nosebleeds, sleeplessness, and headaches. It vanished as mysteriously as it arrived and was never explained. And of course, governments are just not interested about these tremendous phenomenon. They're just going to pass it by. Of course, that's what they do. Well, of course, you know darn well there's agencies behind it. Uh, I should really put some links up too to show you what I've done in Britain before, including spraying millions and millions of people for months and months on end with various uh, toxic substances to see what would happen to them. I mean, just like a laboratory experiment with rats. They had vans driving through streets with special vents on the roofs, so they were invisible to the public. They're up high, and they gave off this stuff as they drove through the little byways and highways of rural England. And they put monitoring stations all around, little boxes that captured this chemical to see what the percentage would be. And then they, they watched to see what kind of illnesses the people came down with. This is your loving governments. Uh, and, of course, they wouldn't use any other kind of weaponry on you. Of course not, of course not. So it must be the UFOs, right? <laughs> anyway, 
says residents of Woodland community consisting of one main street surrounded by farmland claim their version of the hum is constant from midnight until 4 a.m. every night and stops them sleeping. Four, so the exact, this switched on and switched off. It's, it's no great uh, puzzle after all to me as far as I'm concerned. It's bad enough with the smart meters that they can actually, uh, even when you've got everything off in your home, they can actually use your home as a hub and they send signals out to all the grid around you and burn up your electricity and charge it to you as they test everyone else's smart meter. And those things get off some, some noise as well, believe you me. It's a distracting sound. Never mind the microwave that comes off it too. Now, everyone's going into the austerity, and we're living under, again, authoritarian societies today. That's what they said they'd have to do, bring in authoritarian societies, because democracy was too cumbersome, everyone complained, and government spent half their time trying to pacify the public and spin off stories to them through their PR companies. This way it's much better. You just go ahead and do things and let the public complain to each other, which is far better, of course. And this article here is from Australia. And how the stroke of a pen, you know, thousands can get put out of business. Stroke of a pen, of course, by high-level bureaucrats. Far northern farmers feel they're on a highway to hell as the multi-million dollar beef cattle sector joins the list of rural industries under extreme pressure. Cattle grazers are reeling over the suspension of live exports to Indonesia. It's one of their biggest exports is to Indonesia. The banana and sugar industries continue to struggle after extreme weather events and dairy farmers face an uncertain future. Grazier and uh, cane owner Alex Stubbs, who runs one 1,100 head of beef cattle at Mirawini and the Tableland, said many local farmers feared the region's rural industries were going down fast. This is your food industry, <laughs> going down fast. One comment I've seen is that the rural industries in northern Queensland are on a highway to hell. Well, I think, uh, how else would you explain it? There would be very few who would not agree. The latest developments in the live cattle export issue include a federal government refusal to guarantee of compensation after suspending live cattle exports. So at the stroke of a pen, they forbid the, the farmers to, to export their cattle, which is their main, their main job and, and outlook is exports, uh, for a political reason. You know. It says grazers predicting a loss of up to 50 cents per kilogram. Reports of banks already putting pressure on far northern graziers at the same time. It doesn't help it either. Graziers on the, the Castleway Coast, Cape York, Tableland, and in the Gulf believe the federal government has let them down at a time when they were beginning to recover from the wet season. It's not meant that you win in this system. You know, you, you work and you get over something, then they hit you again, isn't it? That's, that's, that's the way it goes. The six-month suspension of the trade was imposed by Canberra after footage was shown on the ABC's Four Corners program of the brutal handling and killing of cattle in some Indonesian abattoirs. So that's why they stopped them. Mr. Stubbs, who had already budgeted for a 50% loss this year in Cain, said he may now get up to 50 cents a kilogram less for his cattle because the industry faces a glut of beef stock on the market. The cattle will have to go to other markets and the floor pricing uh, is gone and how far it drops remains to be seen, he said. So... They're getting bashed as well. The same thing happened with Canada and the fishing industry because for years the federal government put a ban on fishing on the East Coast at certain areas and they allowed deep-sea trawlers to come in from other countries and from Spain and elsewhere, from the European Union, and troll for years. And they trawled everything off, all the eggs, everything were gone. <laughs> and, uh, and they put the, the local the fishermen out of business. And that was all planned too, of course. 
you got to understand they know what they're doing at the top. It, it sounds crazy at the time, but they really know what they're doing, what the long-term goals are supposed to be. They must make you interdependent, which means that you've got to be interdependent on in every other nation uh, for everything that you need. Tied together, absolutely tied together. That's what it's all about. And then, of course, in Australia, too, they're talking about the cost of living to rise by $3,000 in the next year. I'll put that article up as well. And uh, it's just astonishing how, how things are really going at. Same in Britain, too. Uh, but again, that's the way it's planned to be. Austerity means that, I've said this so many times, that uh, austerity means that all your excess spending money that you would buy something for the house or whatever will not be going for that at all. It'll be going on basic necessities. That's what austerity is all designed for. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, I'm back and we're cutting through the matrix. And as I say, it's so amazing to see that human nature never really changes uh, itself. We get great pomp and circumstance with all the politicians with their brand new, I think they wear new shirts every day and new suits every other week on their expenses. Anyway, um, it's interesting to see how we're trained from a very early age to think that's a respectable symbol, a man who's dressed like that. And we are all trained that way across the whole world. No one's ever asked why the suit and tie is supposed to be the respectable uniform, and it is a uniform. Uh, you can look into that yourselves. I've mentioned it before a long time ago on some of the broadcasts I did. However, uh, there's more corruption behind all of this. It's a better camouflage, too, to hide the corruption, because, again, you're, you're indoctrinated to believe that there's somehow better people who really sit and at the wee hours of the morning trying to make things better for you and they, they fret and worry about you and you're, it's all propaganda of course but that doesn't matter propaganda generally wins in the end this article here is European Parliament refuses to release its expenses report the European Parliament is refusing to release a secret report detailing widespread abuse of member of the European Parliament's expenses, despite an EU court ruling that there is overriding public interest in disclosure. At one time, in any kind of parliament, never mind this great Soviet system they've got over there, uh, any parliament is supposed to disclose what they spend. Every department was supposed to do that, what it spent in the year, uh, and its costs and all the rest of it, and its wages, because after all, they pretended at that time, at least they pretended pretty, pretty well, better pretense, that they actually served you. But it says the European Parliament is refusing to release a secret report dealing uh, this, and uh, this is what happens about it. Despite public controversy over Europe over misuse of generous allowances paid to the MEPs, they call these politicians, Parliament officials have fought tooth and nail to keep the Galvin Report number 0602 secret. During an internal investigation, Mr. Galvin discovered large-scale abuses of £185 million in MEP staffing allowances and general expenditure expenses, expenses paid without receipts. Parliament lawyers argued the publicising report could be used to derail decision-making in the EU Assembly. They always do that when you catch them at something, or the public will lose confidence, so we can't tell you what really happened. Uh, the, use, uh, the use members make of the allowances available to them is a sensitive matter, followed with great interest by the media, said the legal submission. 
It's supposed to be that way. The EU judges threw out the special pleading in a judgment on Tuesday, but Parliament's officials yesterday continued to refuse to disclose the report until an administration decision on whether to appeal in August. So they're just going to postpone it until you forget about it. It says that Toland, the Irish lawyer who took the case to court, said he was disappointed that Parliament would not hand over the document. They should publish it and accept the finding of the court. It's a principle that this kind of report should be published now and in the future, he said. No self-respecting Parliament should ever be afraid to discuss its finances in front of the citizens who elect it and who pay for those very funds. And it says... Um, now, a Finnish MP, a Green MP, this is a Green, of course, says instead of inventing Trump excuses to deny citizens access to information that should be in the public domain anyway, the Parliament should be helping. You understand this world and this system we live in, we're all somebody should, how it should be, <laughs> but it never is, is it? Um, where do we get this idea that it's supposed to be, I wonder, you know, how they're supposed to tell you anything at all? And... Here's an article here too. Cocktail parties, private jets and Tiffany jewellery on £7 million EU taxpayer-funded gravy train. Uh, It runs high at the top, doesn't it? European chiefs have landed taxpayers with a grotesque expenses bill running into millions of pounds that highlights once again the culture of excess in Brussels. Private jets, luxury hotels, cocktail parties and even Tiffany jewellery were amongst the items claimed. MPs last night call for inquiry following the release of astonishing details of commissioners' lavish lifestyles. In one case, Jose Manuel Barroso, the European Commission president, ran up a £24,600 hotel bill during a luxury four-day stay in New York. <laughs> the figures reveal that the EU's 27 commissioners clocked up a £6.6 million bill for hiring private jets in the four years to 2010. See, they're just like CEOs of corporations now, and that's how they see themselves. With extra expenses, the bill for their high life comes to £6.99 million, but the sum is likely to be far higher. Uh, I bet by about 10, I'm probably a factor of 10. The figures extracted from official releases and answers to parliamentary questions provide a snapshot of the culture of excess, but sources say they represent only the tip of the iceberg. The full extent is unlikely ever to be revealed, as the figures are not routinely released. As his Britain's commissioners during the period were Peter Mandelson, while well, he'd blow a lot, and Baroness Ashton, so was she. In 2009 alone, the commission billed taxpayers £265,000 for cocktail parties. We're all going down the tubes. It's just like ancient Rome, isn't it? As they all party and wine and whore around, which is no news at all these days. And here's another article, too, that most Americans don't know. Um, Maybe most Canadians don't know it either, but uh, every country that signed on at the United Nations have to set a budget aside every year uh, for groups, uh, that, since 1946 I believe, uh, for groups that promote radical causes. And I stumbled onto this by accident years ago in Toronto when uh, someone asked me to play a, a particular little club. And they wanted radical music, and I thought, well, what's radical music these days? And uh, and they said, it was going to be really radical. I said, why? Well, they get grants from the government for promoting radical causes. And the radical causes they promoted were all, it was homosexuality, lesbianism, uh, and all kinds of really communistic causes, destruction of the family unit, getting paid for all that, the cost of the club, which was really like a pub. Back with more after this break.
You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. Hi, folks. We're back and we're cutting through the matrix, just discussing how every country that signed on the United Nations must put a budget aside to fund uh, really the Communist Manifesto because when you find out what the radical causes that must be promoted are, uh, they're all in line with the Communist Manifesto and a few other things tacked on as well. And But what people don't know is that the EU Union, the European Union, that's now got the, the tax base of the whole of Europe to, to pull from or loot from, is using money to fund left-wing causes in the U.S. This is how EU spends £20 million a year promoting left-wing causes in the U.S. I mean, why do they have to do it? And who's, who's allowing this to happen? Eh? Brussels is pouring nearly £20 million a year from its human rights budget on lecturing the, the Americans on left-wing causes. The EU Human Rights Fund is intended to ho- help promote Western values in the developing world. That's the chronology they use, that, these ter- that kind of terminology, human value, Western human. Well, who's deciding what the Western value, and what are they nowadays, eh? <laughs> you, well, we all know what they are these days. But a short report has found that at least £17 million of cash, around uh, plus uh, £2 million from British taxpayers, has been ploughed into promoting the pet causes of Eurocrats in the U.S., is being spent on promoting abolition of the death penalty, discussion of climate change, green energy, which is all big business, of course, and the International Criminal Court, all controversial subjects in the U.S. The study by Heritage Foundation, a center-right Washington think tank, found a further $4 million has been plowed into a pro-EU propaganda in the U.S., including funds for advertising and publicity material. Uh, more than $3 million has been funneled to American universities. By God, I've seen some documentaries recently from American universities and the statistics too. With I think every professor must be a, a far, far left liberal. That's the only way you can get a job in, in those universities. I'm not kidding too. They've done lots of studies on it. Anyway, to promote the benefits of European integration, it's very important that American universities understand the benefits of European integration, right? And a further three million pounds to think tanks who want to study EU affairs. The European Commission's own accounts show millions have also been paid to unnamed individual opinion formers in the U.S. That's, I'd like to find out who these individual opinion formers happen to be. The report's British author Sally McNamara said it is impossible to justify EU human rights budgets being spent in one of the world's freest nations. Well, it's not so free anymore. Uh, Tory MP Douglas Carswell said the US was founded by North Americans fed up with Europeans interfering in its internal affairs. Well, that's so true, isn't it? <laughs> the US as a country has done more to bring liberty and human rights to the world than anyone in Europe. They don't need any lessons from Brussels. Stephen Booth, research director of Open Europe Think Tank, said the EU has absolutely no mandate to wade into politically sensitive debates in the, in the U.S. Well, he must be the, the, the public relations guy to, to, to spin it off into the opposite direction. And that's what they do. Good news is, too, Dr. Death, Jack Kevorkian, the guy who was funded to go out there killing people, uh, he died himself. And, and he didn't ask for any assistance at all. He didn't even put a plastic bag on his head uh, like he did with his patients. But it, uh, he died at the age of 83, and that's all I'll say about that. Uh, now, it's a Canadian in Canada who's been 
in the news a bit, it's a lot of suppressed news too, to do with the history of especially the West Coast Indian communities and how they were treated by British authorities and still are, in fact. They did the usual thing. They did the same in Scotland too. They tried to destroy your, destroy your culture. And that was the mandate, actually, after 1746 in Scotland. As I say, you couldn't speak your language and you couldn't even wear your, 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 your local tribal outfit, your, your dress, as I say. And um, yeah, you were hung if you, if you did it, if you spoke Gaelic at one point. Anyway, they did the same in Canada. They took children away en masse from their parents and uh, lots of them died in these terrible, sadistic uh, places they were put into. Big homes are often run by the church. Different churches, by the way, there's no real, uh, there's no real speciality on any particular church. They were all equally bad. And many of the Indians came forward in recent years complaining about what they saw. They saw people, children getting killed, for instance. There's rape and all the usual stuff you get when you get children under your wing and all the deviants tend to gravitate towards those jobs, of course. That's where their target is. That's where you go. You go for where the target is and you go for those jobs. Anyway, Kevin Annett got some good documentaries out on this, talking to witnesses who survived. And he went over to England to talk about, um, uh, to join a, a, a sort of protest or a meeting to do with um, uh, child protection, basically. And they arrested him. They arrested him. Because it's not, it's not popular in Canada at all with authorities. Department of Indian Affairs still run the Indians. And they put the RCMP has been involved in cover-ups too, apparently, according to Kevin Annett. And they've been on him too. He lost his wife. He was uh, a minister or a priest, they call it, in the Anglican Church until they barred him, basically, as well. Because he spoke out against what they, they had done their part in it too. And, of course, the Anglican Church is very powerful in Canada because the Queen or whoever, yeah, it's the Queen is the head of it, apparently. And... Um, as part of the crown. In fact, a lot of Masons that come over to Canada from Britain are advised to to join the Church of England. It's always been that way. Anyway, so it's on, on the verge of uh, addressing a major public rally in London against child trafficking by church and state. Reverend Kenneth, uh, Kevin Arnett was arrested and detained on an immigration prison at, in an immigration prison at Stansted Airport last night for over 12 hours and then deported from England without due cause. Amazing, eh? They try to protect children, uh, and uh, and they come right down on you and lock you up. Border officials uh, detained Kevin at 8 p.m. Sunday night upon his return from speaking in the Netherlands and deported him the next morning after fingerprinting, for, uh, photographing, and jailing him in a crowded immigration prison cell. The only reason they gave for denying me re-entry into England was that my giving public lectures was not an appropriate activity for visitors to that country, if you can believe that, Kevin Annett said today in a mass present uh, statement. I mean, it's amazing all the other rights, of course, you could have gone over there and protested, all the politically correct ones today, and you've been showered with wine and put in someone's expense account, probably the public's. It says, but I've repeatedly mentioned my lecturing work to customs people whenever I enter England, and it's never been an issue before now, and the cop who detained me admitted that the decision to deny me entry came after he consulted his supervisor and the computer files about me. He was detained by British Customs Police and members of the private security firm Reliance, which operates the airport detention facilities and growing numbers of prisons in England. It's all privatized now. eh? Again, we're in this new fascist system uh, that Quigley talked about. He was all for it too, Quigley. That's why he wrote so honestly about it. 
While detained, Kevin was denied the right to communicate with others and the arresting officers refused to give him their names or badge numbers. Very democratic Britain, uh, spending all their money uh, telling the U.S. how to be democratic from the last article. Eh? This morning, Kevin was sent back to his departure point in Eindhoven, Netherlands. This was obviously aimed at our ITCCS tribunal to prevent us convening this September in London, but nothing will halt our campaign for the murdered and tortured children. This only shows how scared these villains are of exposure. And I'll put a link up to that tonight too. And you can go through it for yourselves. Resilient cities, that's one of the the things that came out of the Agenda 21, also called the Millennium Project and a few other names all to confuse you, it's all the same thing, about how the society is to be uh, managed from now on into the future. And this Resilient Cities is part of it. That came out in Bonn in 2010, I think. <clears throat> but it's got all the different United Nations organizations that are part of this. This is over a, de- a decade ago, most countries joined an international treaty the United Nations Convention on Climate Change is called the UNFCCC to begin to consider what can be done to reduce global warming. It's all under the auspices of global warming. It's nothing to do with that. It's eugenics, depopulation, and the planned society, right? But that, that'll do. It's so to cope with whatever temperature increases are inevitable. More recently, a number of nations approved, in, in, in addition to the treaty, the Kyoto Protocol, which was more powerful and legally binding measures. The UNFCCC Secretary supports all institutions involved in the climate change process, particularly the COP, the subsidiary bodies, and their bureau. Now, it's got all the links on this website, too, to all these organizations from the United Nations working towards this. And it's got UN Habitat. That's another name for it, too, uh, as is communitarianism. The United Nations Human Settlements Program, Human Settlements Program, uh, UN Habitat is the United Nations Agency for Human Settlements. It is mandated by the UN General Assembly to promote socially and environmentally sustainable towns and cities with the goal of providing adequate shelter for all. That's what all you'll get is a tin roof probably, because you won't have any heating, so you won't be able to afford it. UN Habitat's programs are designed to help policymakers and local communities get to grips with the human settlements and urban issues and find workable, lasting solutions. That's their final solutions. They'll probably put you in a Malthusian swamp. That's what he advised that they put these places in and let the folk die off of disease. And they do love uh, Malthus. Then there's the UNEP, the United Nations Environmental Program. We're all paying for all all these characters, you know. It's the UN Voice for the Environment. Within the scope of its activities, the UNEP is a main actor for advocacy, education, that's indoctrination, and facilitator promoting the wise use and sustainable development of global environment. To ensure its global effectiveness, UNEP supports six regional offices plus a growing network of centers of excellence. Moreover, the UNEP promotes and hosts environmental conventions and conferences, which you all pay for, by the way, because you all get grants from the governments to send the NGOs over. Then there's this one here, UNISDR. The International Strategy for Disaster Reduction was adopted by United Nations member states in 2000 and is owned by local, national, regional. See, we don't live in countries anymore. It's really regions. They're all blocks in our countries and international organizations. The UNISDR, led by the Assistant Secretary General for Disaster Risk Reduction, is a secretariat to ISDR, <laughs> they love these terms, eh? and is mandated to act as a focal point in the United Nations system for the coordination of disaster reduction. 
And that's all, that's all part of it too, where they're moving into. It's supposed to be helped to, to lead disaster reduction if anything happens. And to ensure that disaster risk reduction becomes integral to sound and equitable development, environmental protection and humanitarian action. And then as UNISDR, uh, Resilient Cities, they launched the Resilient Cities uh, thing and so on. And I'll, I'll put the links up for that too. And you can get the whole report for the Resilient Cities, which is again communitarianism. Then there's the UNDP, United Nations Development Program, and then the World Bank. It tells you what their big part of it is at the World Bank and all of this. And uh, then there's the UNU-EHS. Explores problems and promotes solutions related to the environmental dimension of human security. And then there's UNESCAP, U-N-E-S-C-A-P. Asian Development Bank is part of this, by the way. The European Environment Agency is part of it. The Congress of Local and Regional Authorities is part of it. The Federal Ministry for Economic Cooperation and Development. That's an old one. Uh, they set up under the guise of restructuring countries after World War II, after they flattened them all. See, War II, remember, is a big demolition program where they, where they destroy all the old and then build new. That's why they firebombed a good part of Japan. It wasn't just atomic bombs. They firebombed most of it and got rid of their old uh, houses because they wanted to, to bring it up to be a, a, an industrial um, manufacturer, and that was all part of it. It was discussed during World War II by Hopkins, uh, FDR, and others. Federal Ministry of the Environment, Nature Conser- Conservation and Nuclear Safety, Climate Development Knowledge Network, uh, was uh, the, the, the German ones too, and a whole bunch of other ones as well. It's endless, and you think you're all running a country or living in a country that's run by politicians that are there to serve you. Just astonishing. Meanwhile, at home, of course, you get arrested if you feed people illegally. Illegal feeding of homeless. No kidding. It's very much like specialists now are the only ones who can do anything. You understand FEMA, during New Orleans disaster, stopped everyone going in with food and aid and all the rest of it and said they were, were not qualified to help. They weren't trained and qualified to help. And that's why they let people drown for weeks. Uh, again, that, that did achieve, I guess, part of their population reduction program. Anyway, so it says here, Orlando police say they violated a city ordinance restricting the feedings. Uh, members of uh, Orlando Food Not Bombs were arrested Wednesday when police said they violated a city ordinance by feeding the homeless in Lake Eola Park. Isn't that terrible? I guess you can feed the bird as long as it's got a nest. Jessica Cross, 24, Benjamin Markson, 49, and Jonathan Keith McHenry were arrested at 6.10 p.m. on a charge of violating the ordinance restricting group feedings in public parks. McHenry is a co-founder of the International Food Not Bombs movement, which began in the early 1980s. The group lost a court battle in April, clearing the way for the city to enforce the ordinance. It requires groups to obtain a permit and limits each group to two permits per year for each park within a two-mile radius of City Hall. Do you ever get the feeling uh, that bureaucrats are getting... It's like a cancerous cell. A cancerous cell is a mutant cell, you understand? And it creates more mutants. And I think that's what happens when you set an office up and just put one person in it. They become mutant, these bureaucrats, and they just start spreading all over the place. That's, That's my theory, you know. Interesting, too... They want to put chips in your food. I've heard about this before, but it says NutroSmart prototype embeds RFID tags directly within food and traces your lunch from start to finish. And it's got a video. I don't want to actually watch that video, especially the finishing part. 
NMSA says that the tags are already used to trace everything from poker chips to hotel towels. But what if these little pellets were embedded directly within your lunch, providing everything you'd ever want to know uh, about that ham sandwich you're supposed you're about to eat? That's the idea behind NutriSmart, a food tracking system that revolves around edible RFID tags. Developed by Hans Harms, a design engineering student at the Royal College of Art in London. I'd hell call that, that art, wouldn't you? Maybe they would these days, they're so perverted. These little markers would allow consumers to trace the entire supply chain behind every item in their cupboard while feeding valuable nutrition information to dieters or people with particularly dangerous food allergies. Kodak, as you may recall, came up with a similar idea a few years ago, though Harms' prototype extends beyond the realms of medical monitoring. Properly equipped refrigerators, for example, would be able to alert users whenever their stock's about to expire, simply by scanning the tags. Then the SWAT team will come in if it's expired and shoot you if you try to eat them. <laughs> the NutriSmart concept also calls for a smart plate, which Harms described as an invisible diet management system. Just put your meal on the plate and an embedded reader will analyze your food, tell you how many miles it traveled before arriving, how interesting, at your kitchen, and transmit all of its history and caloric data to your phone via Bluetooth. Oh, goodness me. No word on yet what would happen to these tags post-digestion. Uh, they'll probably charge you for waste disposal uh, as you're, you're helping to cause more waste in, in, in the sewage system, no doubt. Or maybe they'll make them recyclable and they'll come, they'll come up and uh, clean them up and polish them. Mm. But anyway, that's quite something. Now, as we all know, Japan went quiet the day they bombed Libya. You know, the US and Britain and all the rest and France bombed Libya. It's like it never happened. And of course, we know that the stuff is still spewing out radiation. And they say it might take 10 years before they stop it. Back with a story on that after this break. Hi folks, we're back cutting through the matrix now with the radiation that we're told was spilling across the whole world and one by one they pulled down the official governmental sites and all the agencies that worked for government. One by one they went down showing massive radiation coming right across the Pacific and across especially Canada and the US. And uh, we know it has to have affected us too. But they've got all quiet because we're not supposed to know, don't scare the children, we're all children. That's how they treat us now in this age of global management. Anyway, it says in this article here, a physician and epidemiologist say 35 spike in, in infant mortality in the northwest cities since meltdown might be the result of fallout from Fukushima. And children, of course, are more susceptible to it shows up quicker in them. It says um, radiation safety standards are set based on the assumption, this is how they set them, that everyone exposes a healthy man in his 20s. That's how they generally do these tests. Now, physician Janet Sherman, MD, and epidemiologist Joseph Mangano append a short but horrifying essay asking whether a spike in infant deaths in the northwest are due to Fukushima. It says the recent CDC Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report indicates that eight cities in the northwest, U.S., Boise, ID, Seattle, uh, Portland, Oregon, plus the Northern California cities of Santa Cruz, Sacramento, San Francisco, San Jose, and Berkeley reported the following data on deaths amongst those younger than one year of age. From the four weeks ending March 19, 2011, 37 deaths was averaging about 9.25 per week. 
And then 10 weeks ending May 28, 2011, 125 deaths per week. It went up from 37 to 125 deaths per week uh, in that that time from March to May. This amounts to an increase of 35%. The total for the entire U.S. rose about 2.3% and is statistically significant. Of further significance is that those dates include the four weeks before and the 10 weeks after the Fukushima nuclear power plant disaster. In 2001, for instance, the incident mortality was 6.834 per 1,000 live births, increasing to 6.845 in 2007. All years from 2000 to 2007 were higher than the 2001 rate. Data from the Chernobyl, which exploded 25 years ago, clearly shows increased numbers of sick and weak newborns and increased numbers of deaths in the unborn and newborns, especially soon after the meltdown. These occurred in Europe as well as the former Soviet Union. Similar findings are also seen in wildlife living in the areas with increased radioactive fallout levels. And then it goes on to levels of radioisotopes were measured in children who had died in the Minsk area that received Chernobyl fallout. And it shows you step by step how they go through uh, this process and record the data on births and so on. But as I say, if this is going up in the U.S. as well, it will be going up in Canada. I don't know if we'll ever report it in Canada. Probably not. We're better here. We're more laid back and we watch front-page news of sports stories and stuff like that. But I'll put this link up tonight as well, and you can have a little look at that. And then maybe I'll go into some of the characters of the United Nations tomorrow. It's interesting to see some of them because... People don't realize that there's a religion at the United Nations, and it's always been involved. We don't have the meditation room, Rockefeller room, of course. We know that uh, he was into theosophy, and the theosophists also had a place there as well. Uh, that Lucis Trust also was, was in the, the, the Rockefeller Plaza, or the UN Plaza, I should say. And um, I'll go into some of the details on Muller, one of the old guys there, and how he's a top theosophist of the world and the kind of world he envisages coming in. From Hamish Marcel from Ontario, Canada, as good night. I mean, your God or your gods go with you.